0: the mortal dead somehow obtain knowledge that neither the living nor the immortals have access to. And this is something that the immortals are, the gods are very interested in and use magic to obtain. And it seems also to have been reflected in the living as well, that the the mortal uh, humans try to, engage with the dead in necromantic rituals to obtain this kind of sacred knowledge. This tradition is so ancient, not, maybe not just 6,000 years old, back to the proto-Indo-Europeans, but because we see similar examples in Native American religion, and they have a common ancestor with the Indo-Europeans 20,000 years ago in Ice Age Siberia. So it may date back to ice age Siberia.
1: Today, we're talking with the excellent historian of early European religion, Tom Roussel. You might know him from his YouTube channel, Survive the Jive, and uh, there's links in the description for his channel.
0: I come from a high church Protestant background, um, very high up the candle, like my aunt attended, she's Anglican, but she attended Latin mass um, all the time. Even her funeral was in Latin. Um, That's, been the case in in the Roussel family for you know centuries now it wasn't it wasn't constantly I think there was a time when we were more low church in the 18th century but over the 19th century the, the whole family became very associated with the Oxford movement but the I was sent to Catholic school not Anglican school and that's partly because my mother has some Irish ancestry and uh, also because they didn't uh, my family well, but my parents went to boarding school at privately educated and their parents were as well, but they didn't have enough money to send me to um, a boarding school or anything like that. So I just, they wanted to have a decent education. Catholic state schools are quite generally better than the average state school in in the UK. So I grew up um, with that sort of uh, Catholic outlook. And then when my, after my parents divorced, my my father remarried to an Italian woman uh, who is my stepmother And she had some influence on me as well, and as a Catholic. So I've had that sort of Catholic uh, and the high church sort of high candle religion. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was ever devout. I wasn't ever devout exactly in it. And I, in fact, I was often in trouble in school for being heretical. Uh, I had just my own ideas about how God, what God was like, that don't correspond with the Bible. I didn't really worship Jesus um just the, I thought I'd just go straight to the only worship the father because I thought why well, I have a immediate anything in between which is rather Jewish I suppose in in outlet but the um <laughs> right. the the I also refused to uh sing the song about the donkey because I thought that would be idolatrous so it wasn't exactly I, my rebellions were exactly pagan but I certainly did have very pagan inclinations like I, I kind of I mean, this is a cliche. A lot of people say I do. I did feel like the oak forests of England were a sacred place, very more sacred to me than the church, uh, and that you could say is a pagan instinct. But I, my my adolescent rebellious phase uh, was accompanied by a, a rejection of of the church. And uh, an atheism which didn't come naturally or easily to me. So I had to convince myself I was an atheist, convince myself that the world was devoid of divine power. And that was very difficult for me to do because I didn't really believe it. Um, so I went through this very, very hard, difficult stage of consciously trying to alter my worldview to make myself an atheist, which was an extremely uh, important event in my life because it was. Ex- it was undermining something fundamental to me, which I'd always seen, viewed everything in terms of the divine. Uh, and, and I I was literally, you could say a God fearing boy because I was afraid of God. Uh, but, um, the, it wasn't really authentic because I still believed in things and I, and the things I believed and had believed when I was a Catholic weren't actually Catholic. I had all, as I say, like my own intuitions, which were often heretical and, and, uh, and and therefore it's questionable whether I ever really was a Christian, but I certainly wasn't, I don't think, and it's also questionable whether I ever really was an atheist as well. So it was like, I had to come to terms with what I really believed. And um, that, I, that didn't really begin properly until after I finished my first degree. But I, even during my degree in Brighton, I, I think I once or twice referred to myself as a pagan, but not in the sense that I believed and worshiped the gods, more I was just trying to vaguely understand what it is I actually, my spiritual identity was. And it wasn't until afterwards, long after I started casually describing myself as a pagan that I actually spent a long time studying the religions of different cultures, Aztecs, Egyptians, Greeks, uh, and reading, surprisingly, one really sort of consecration on my path uh, was reading Nietzsche in 2007 at the end of my degree and I probably read in the six months following my my the three year degree in Brighton I read a lot of philosophy for the first time I read Plato and Nietzsche and things and I may have learned more then than I did in the three previous years in those few months after when I started learning philosophy and I traveled to I was in Berlin that that winter and I was at the statue of Dionysus and I just to me it was like a I would felt myself to be in the presence of the numinous. Right. Uh, and and that was so much because this my new muse my prophet Nietzsche who was so important <laughs> to me in 2007 had had Dionysus as his guiding spirit and I felt like perhaps this was mine too. And um
1: but over is course that of the- that's so interesting that you say that though because with that's how it happened. That's how it works in the sense of nihilism. That's going to the no-thingness. And from the no thingness is that's where you get to being. That's how how you that's how you of course you purify yourself first, then you can have the experience of the newness. And Nietzsche never got there though, but it sounds like you did when you went to the well, statue yeah. of Dionysus.
0: I, I eventually rejected Nietzsche. Nietzsche was so important for me because he helped me to reject some of the Christian thought processes that I still clung to. Uh, um, I I, I didn't realise how how pervasive that Christian morality was um, until I read Nietzsche into my own worldview. Because I I ostensibly rejected Christianity, but in fact I hadn't, and I I realised that that was the case. That like all these people calling themselves atheists weren't hadn't rejected Christianity at all. They were just uh promoting christian morality in a diff in a non-christian form um in fact even the but, inversion
1: yeah. of it like nietzsche still wasn't either because he was in the resistance and the opposite is still of the same you have to get to, yeah. you have to be of oh. something else but anyway go on go on
0: well I, I didn't want i wasn't interested in the transvaluation of all morals uh as a goal what struck me as interesting in Nietzsche when he contrasts slave morality and master morality, and the master morality is what is typified by pre-Christian Europe, Uh, the, the, the classical Europe, the Romans and the Greeks. This struck me as extremely desirable, and this was like, this felt to me like this was like my natural inclination, uh, was, was to a morality, not to be immoral or to, or to surpass, go beyond morals, as Nietzsche claimed was the, 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 the objective of the ubermensch, but rather to restore the healthy morality of pre-Christian Europe, the heathen morality, and um, it seemed to me intuitively just morally correct. That, that 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 there should be a master morality and a slave morality, like uh, or, or not that there should be a slave morality, but the master morality is preferable to the slave morality. Um, so I, um, yeah, I just carried on reading and I carried on looking for things to try and enhance my knowledge of the pagan world, and I and I eventually um, decided to return to university in 2011 to because then by that time, by about 2009, I had fixed my ideas on germanic paganism because i realized the other ones were interesting the other kinds of paganism egyptian aztec or whatever but i am an englishman and the the pagan the way that paganism works is that it's explicitly tied to your ethnic Background and to your land, into your culture. So I couldn't authentically be any kind of pagan except an English pagan.
1: The statue of Dionysus. Where were you? Was this the first experience you had of the a presence of the god? Had you had a pre- experience or a relationship with God before that in the Christian sense, as in an experience of the presence of it, or was it simply just uh, more yes. of the ritual and practice? I, was, I
0: mean, this was in. So in 2007, that was that statue of Dionysus was in the I can't remember the name, the main museum in Berlin. Um, uh, I was there with a girlfriend at the time uh, on a little trip. Um, The I had that was probably the first time a statue of a god had been uh, experienced in that way. But, you know, there had been a grand oak tree in the woods as a child that I'd always felt very attached to. and almost in a religious way, and I remember when it was cut down, the, the being very very upset, really um, distraught about it, uh, because every time we saw, I saw it, I used to run up to it and hug it, and it was this enormous, you know, ancient oak tree, and it must have been cut down because it was um, health and safety hazard or something like that. And I don't know. It wasn't it wasn't to cut down for timber. It was right in the in the forest, you know. So it was, um, but uh, yeah. I don't I remember that but I mean my and I as I said already I did have a, a very you know I was very much a religious person minded yes. child as well so exactly. I always perceived God and um I was encouraged to in my Catholic school everything was you know this and that about the Bible.
1: So okay but- so as we go into then paganism and and learning and looking to unlock more of it would you say then okay a relationship trying to open the relationship with the gods right a and trying to understand more of it on how to how to what to do what the prayers are all that sort of stuff the ritual when did you how long did it take and when did you first start to have contact let's say and what were the what what how long was it what were the uh procedures started to work was it something that was sort of uh, ephemeral to begin with or was it can you just talk about your early uh can, early what's the best word for it your your not conversion it's kind of a self-conversion in a way isn't it but maybe you can just mm. expo- explore that uh well i i, as I
0: say i i it was around 2009 that I confidently referred to myself as a pagan. I previously referred to myself as a pagan, as I, as I already explained, um, but not not in the same way. But it, by 2009, I was, you know, a, a pagan in the in the sense that I understood the, the gods who I was worshipping, and I openly told people that, that that's what I was doing. Um, so, yeah. Now, when I tell people how ask people how long have you been pagan, I don't I, I don't start from the date. I began calling myself a pagan. I start from 2009 because then that's when I feel like I was really authentically engaged in it. Um, Right.
1: And by authentically uh, engaged, you mean as the relationships opened with the God, the gods? Well,
0: um, what what I mean is that I actually under I I learned and understood um, the way, the way that who the gods were, learned about the mythology, learned about things, started attending public rituals uh, of pagan groups, Not very good ones to start off with, but um, and contacting the pagan groups and understanding uh, the way to go about things um, and praying to the gods as well. But uh, I don't. Some neo pagans they use terminology like "work with." They say, "I work with this god" or "work with." I never have considered that uh, appropriate. It it isn't. It is uh, an anachronism. Nobody, I mean, nobody spoke like that in pagan times. You don't it's simply a case of um praying to them and uh, and making offerings to them it isn't there's no there's no working with there's no collaboration or anything like that it's a it's a it's the relationship of a, a suppliant to the to, exactly. to a, that's what i was yeah, thinking yeah. you don't you yeah. invite
1: it turns up if it if it wants <laughs> you're an mm. aunt it turns up and mm. you may you may uh, it may beckon you or it invitation is get, perhaps given there, but uh, that language struck struck me as working with what is this therapy? <laughs> you know, yeah it, it's but, it's uh, very
0: new age. it's very new age. I, I, mm-hmm. I tried to I tried to that was one of the first obstacles I had because in especially in 2009, I think British paganism was very, very much dominated by this kind of wishy-washy Wiccan and uh, new age stuff which is not authentic in my opinion. And it might come from a good place. It comes from the motivations for it are, are, are quite good in in general. They're trying to engage with the divine, but they don't want to do it on the terms that our ancestors did. And I think that that means that they're, they're going the wrong direction already because that a massive part of paganism has always been reverence for the ancestors. And I, for me, that's been an important part of it because it isn't a case of just finding the gods and... and, and, and making them and finding a way to perceive their presence. Because first off, you, 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 I think it's good to just, um, you know, re- learning to revere one's ancestors, to make offerings to a shrine of the ancestors. You, there, are, there is a hierarchy of, um, in Platonic, you know, in the Platonic philosophy, there is a hierarchy of beings with the daimony, da, daimons um, being superior to us, uh, but with uh, with the the immortal soul is superior to the diamonds and then the gods higher even than that so um you use the diamonds are an intermediate being uh, and you know later platonism influenced by semitic religion and semitic religions influenced by platonism place angels the semitic beings on that hierarchy somewhere along with diamonds maybe above diamonds the daimon. So um, before they start to use the term demon to but the, the word demon actually is the word demon doesn't exclusive when it was first used by the Jews who translated Septuagint doesn't refer just to the daimons. It refers also to the gods. So the gods are di- demons and the daimons are demons but the angels are not di- de- daimons except in some like uh, Philo the Jew did admit that actually Diamonds and angels are the same thing, it's but most Jews wouldn't admit it, only Philo, as far as I know. But the there also um,
1: um, there was a uh, in the medieval period, there were certain people who were up for including that in the hierarchy, but it was just, it was in the minority, the day yeah, especially, especially in the it Renaissance, evil, was supposed to be neutral to begin with, but well, not supposed to be, the majority ended up doing what it did, but uh, yeah, CS yeah, Lewis the, talked the, about that.
0: Uh, the, the, the Magi, the Renaissance things, and the re- revival of Platonic philosophy de- definitely saw that sort of reassessment of it. But in in the Germanic pagan term, terms, the, you know, w- we can have equivalents, we have equivalents to this Platonic hierarchy. And there are things, there are numerous beings between gods and man. And just, there's nothing wrong with implicating them. Uh, it's not about just gods. It's about... Um, all these intermediate beings, which create a divine procession from the highest to the lowest, so that everything is linked up uh, correctly. So that whenever you placate off, make offerings to something superior to yourself, even if it's not a god, it leads to the gods because everything is a hierarchy leading up ultimately to the gods. So, um, is
1: it, are they, uh, have you, has someone or you, arranged the, the, Norse gods into the Germanic gods into the hierarchy into the uh, the amblist, the hierarchy. Have you? Uh, done I don't think it anyone's or...
0: just formally done it because right. it, it there's no in the in the written sources we have, no one can say whether you know exactly which where everything places. Like I think most would agree that elves are higher than the dwarves, but they don't. But what about things like um you know it's like hard to place. Is a fülgir higher than an elf? It's not. Uh, Fülgir and elves are not. It's hard to say. I'd say that the soul. I mean, the fulge is part of the of, of what's called soul. But the, usually, when we translate the Germanic word soul, the problem with Germanic word soul is it doesn't exist in any pagan Germanic literature. It's only introduced with Christianity. But it isn't. Co- it doesn't correspond to any of the Christian words for soul either. A lot of the time, in ancient Greek terms, they're using. I mean, the the terms for soul essentially mean breath. Uh, And that actually is a a direct parallel in Germanic paganism with und. But um, und is never translated as soul because it it gets very complicated when you're mixing like the transition of like platonic pagan terms into platonic Christianity. And then Norse paganism has its own terminology and it's it's like which... between the different languages, the translations, a lot can be lost. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the soul—the the problem is the soul, uh, as it's described in Platonic philosophy, doesn't exist uh, exactly in Germanic paganism. It does have a parallel because I expe- express that, like when Plato talks about the tripartite soul, that's much more similar to the Germanic conception of a pagan soul because whatever this doesn't they don't have the word soul but the the self is comprised of different parts one of which is the breath that comes from odin and breath is generally the best translation of the spirit or the soul right but um that departs but the fulga for example this entity which is basically a kind of like equivalent to a kind of a daemon or a a, a genius or, a, a genius of the race um that is uh certainly i think that could be a, compared to some things on the platonic hierarchy but uh getting it exactly one for one that you could draw a nice little neat diagram would be pretty tricky and controversial because there's so many things you could argue over um so i don't know if anyone's done that and i'm not sure if that they have done it, it it's going to be a hundred percent
1: it strikes right. me that it's worth i mean it's not my religion but it strikes me that it's worth in the sense of understanding what because there is an order to things a purification must always come for uh, being uh, illuminated uh mm. you need to do that before you go into it. even in, in orthodox christianity it's the same thing you, you do it before you enter the the inner chamber so it strikes me that it's worth doing though i understand what you mean is that when you've got all these people disagreeing you could analyze the behavioral pattern it, that to determine i would think that uh, um, though, though I'm not a theologian so but you I mean it's <laughs> that's tough work it's I mean, tough work because it's reconstruction and it's uh if it it's helps it's no different to
0: the council of Nicaea in a way because the council of Nicaea was a bunch of you know a bunch of bishops invited most of them didn't turn up the ones who did turn up actually had fist fights during this council because they didn't agree on anything and they were trying to cram these like ancient semitic superstitions and a new model of like uh, a cult of one prophet into a Platonic framework, which it was never designed to fit. Uh, it was never intended to be fit into a Platonic framework. And they, I mean, I think that you know Constantine was just eager to like cram it into a Platonic framework because Platonism was the agreed, you know, religious philosophy of the of the Roman Empire. And in order for Christianity to seriously be- become the religion of the West, it needed to fit into a Platonic framework. And it was done, I don't think people agreed on it, really. Like, the Council of Nicaea was not widely agreed on. The fact that many bishops didn't even show up for it, or whatever, I well, think... Perhaps
1: that's a, just a good enabling constraint. It has to be done, and it will be done, because the emperor says it will be done. Yeah, <laughs> it may be that, so, maybe
0: that has to happen with uh, Germanic paganism, too. Like We have to cram it into a platonic framework in the same way the Christians did.
1: Well, you need know, um, the overarching yeah. structure of it. It strikes me, again, I'm not your... I, it's, I, I'm, don't take any of this as blasphemous to you. So don't be insulted if I <laughs> say something that you uh, disagree with or whatnot. But because um, it is religion, after all. But uh, yeah, it strikes me that it's it's a, uh, and it seems to fit. It is when you look at the other mythologies or so look at the other the cosmologies. Let's say it ha- is very striking in its narrative quality. You don't it, it's got a grand cosmic scale that these other ones at least i don't i feel anyway that it that it 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 feel it works for the greeks i always i always thought about the germanics it'd be so if to have seen what emerged out of it philosophically if it just had its isolation i would have loved Mm. to have seen what came out of a cosmology that had the highest good as the final battle compared to as tolkien says the monsters are in the middle in this mm. in mythos to see just to see what philosophy came out of that mm. as compared to the greeks because of course yeah i don't who knows well, I what think that, could have happened but uh i personally don't think that it would have been
0: i think you can see how two separate completely separate indo-european like religions greek and in and the hindu both tended from a a, a, a very like you know a bronze age type as as it evidenced in the Rig Veda and uh, and in Homer's poetry to something in the actual age more philosophical and resulting in Vedanta and Platonism. And I think it's kind of like, a you know, people sit down and think about things and they'll come to rational conclusions. So it's like, uh, I would have thought that the Godis of the Germanic priesthood would have ultimately come to similar conclusions. And what we know of the Druids of the Celtic religion, for example, is that the, the Greeks philosophers and scholars talking about the Druids don't talk about them being in any way philosophically opposed to the, to the Pythagor- Pythagoreans or Platonists. And in fact, they, they even speculate whether Pythagoras was influenced by the Druids or, or, or vice versa. So like, you know, when you have learned men considering important issues, I think that they come, they will come to rational conclusions and, and similar conclusions. Therefore, so I, I, I presume that something similar would have emerged.
1: Assumes that our metaphysics is the only metaphysics. There could, the ontology might not be. The we think it's intelligibility. Okay, so Platonism of co- is right about intelligibility and right about the forms. <laughs> We don't know what other metaphysic could have emerged we're in it we're in the Greek bubble of the metaphysic like say for mm. instance, the Heidegger went to Greece and he I've just read recently his account of it It's really so interesting about him trying to match up his ontological theory and his the way he talks about it is that he goes to Delos and he talks about how the landscape almost maps onto the way the world unfolds for the Greeks and and how that landscape builds world to open up the openness that is, that is Greek, that is being because before before Greek metaphysics before Greek, the Greeks, there was no openness, really, there was no, there was no philosophy, that being that sort of using language to map something and necessary and sufficient conditions to have logic and the logos. It was, before that, it's sort of it's sort of mythology on its own. There is no, it's not the same, it's primitive mentality. The mentality is different, right? And the way Heidegger talks about it is just so fascinating. And I wondered, and so that's what brought me to that, uh, that idea of, oh, if these things had their isolation, how would the thinking evolve? Is it something that's just incognition, that this is naturally where we would end up with the ontology that we have? Or is it really out of the landscape and the world that the Greeks were in? And would it be different if it was the Germanic? I'm sure it would be different in some respects, but I think that the core assumptions
0: of Platonic philosophy are not that much opposed to the core assumptions of, uh, you know, post-Vedic thought in India, Vedanta or otherwise. Uh, I use Vedanta more in its more general sense here to mean like, the Indian beliefs that uh, try to link the Puranas and the Vedas and uh, all the Indian texts as one coherent religion, um, rather than like in any other modern sense. But uh, they're still coming to ideas about, you know, one higher than the others, one being Mm. one god, you know, one prime mover above the other gods, one, you know, uh, about, they, they have ideas about the transmigration of souls. There, there do seem to be a lot of
1: common features. So when you've looked at these two, let's say verdict was it, the Indian religion, have, did you notice a any evolution from poetic language more to po- a, po- a prose language more? Because in terms of the theory of how these things emerge, uh, anything is that it all begins with that verse poetry that's the first that's how the gods are first Uh, the original logos the primordial logos is a see. is a it's not a speaking it's a speaking in looking it's 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 the thing coming out of the void and seeing it it's your intel becoming intelligible and verse is used by homer for instance right that's what poets do they see The thing and it's brought together, especially primordially, when it's first articulated. That's where all communication sort of begins, right? So I I don't know if you've noticed a pattern where it's more poetic and more cryptic in the earlier stuff, perhaps, than the later stuff. Is it clearer and more prose-like, more logic-like? Yes.
0: The rather like how there's a gap between Plato and Homer, there is a large Difference between later Puranic literature and the and the earliest Rigveda. And I mean, this is controversial to talk about, more so than the Greeks, because in, in India it's a living religion. And basically, the orthodox position is that there is no difference in the religion of the later. There is no difference, it's always been one religion in India from the Bronze Age. But then outside scholars, particularly Western scholars, who aren't in any way, you know, worried about offending Hindus, had looked at the Rig Veda and said, this is not the same religion. It's talking about animal sacrifice. It, m- most of the gods that the Hindus worship aren't even mentioned in the Rig Veda. And many of the ones that the main focus in the Rig Veda are hardly worshiped at all now in India. Um, and it's very much, they're praying for things like victory in battle, destroying their enemies, uh, giving them more cattle. They're obsessed with cows. The Rig Veda is the, 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 the portrays a Bronze Age religion of cattle herders who want to acquire land and cattle. Uh, it's very, you know, ancient Indo-European religion. and they, they worship a dawn goddess. They worship a, a, a thundering sky god, uh, Indra, who gives them victory over their enemies. Uh, they worship these horse twins, um, you know, horses are important and elephants aren't in, in this early religion. It's like, it changes, um, and, um, the, it becomes more introspective, more philosophical in the later texts, uh, just like in Greece, like, you know, Homer talks about the gods very, very differently to the Platonists. Um, And I I think that's basically because the Bronze Age religions gradually changed uh, into something else. And I think that happened too in the Germanic world because the Bronze Age Germanic religion was extremely focused on a solar cult. We can tell that. We have no Bronze Age texts, of course, for the Germanic world, but the Germanic artifacts of the Bronze Age are... All focused on a solar cult, whether they be, you know, rock carvings, uh, little uh, engravings on on artifacts like of of the chariot pulling the sun, um, or even the model, the Trondheim chariot of a horse pulling a sun in a in a wagon. So it was extremely solar, and that seems to be. Uh, something of, of, of a Bronze Age character. And then what we see in the mythology depicted by Snorri Sturluson in, in medieval Iceland is something quite different. Uh, and oh, there's some question as to how accurate Snorri's depiction of it is because he's a few hundred years after the conversion to Christianity. But um, we, we know it's pretty accurate because we have artifacts from the Viking Age depicting the same mythology that, that Snorri later wrote down. So he didn't make it all up. But uh, it certainly is. There's a, there's a difference. And um, so that so the, uh, what my point is that Germanic religion wasn't static uh, any more than the Indian or the Greek ones were. And they were while they themselves in Greece and India did not see them as cells of having changed religions from Bronze Age to Iron Age to you know, into the actual age. We, uh, as as outsiders looking at across history, can see that there was a big change.
1: Have you? You've travelled around Norway. You've travelled around uh, these these Nordic areas. Have you found particular landscapes? Because I ask this question because there is no temple for for pagans to worship in so much, but there probably are areas that are that are Thor, that are Odin, just like they're the very. World in Greece, Delos. These places actually first made the gods intelligible. Have you noticed any regions, places, or you do know of ones that are named that for a particular reason? That is the very place where Thor is, in a way.
0: There are many places, theophoric place names in Scandinavia and England, um, where then the places have been named after the gods. So I grew up. Uh, one of the villages I grew up in. Uh, in Surrey was close to another village called Thursley. And Thursley means Thor's Lee. And a Lee is a, 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 a word for a sacred clearing in the forest uh, where, where they performed rituals. So, um, and that's near to Tuesley, which is also in Surrey. And Tuesley it means the Lee of Tew, is another Anglo-Saxon god. So we can say without controversy, these were sacred places of the gods. Uh, of those specific gods, there are m- many, many places named after Woden in England. I covered all this in my film from Ruins to Ruins. You've got Wensbury, Wensfield, Woden's Dyke. All of these places are known- named specifically after the god Woden. And similarly across Scandinavia, you have theophoric place names. The god Tyr, besides tuesley uh, which is Tew is the English version of Tyr, but Tyr is not found in most of Scandinavia in theophoric names, but Mainly in Denmark, whereas uh, Odin names you find uh, maybe further north a lot more. It's interesting because it shows that the cults of different gods were regionally specific. Uh, I haven't explored Denmark and Norway very much. I've been to Norway and Denmark, but not like not very much around. Whereas Sweden, I've explored extensively. I've been all over, and because uh, I lived there and. Um, I know a lot of sacred spaces there, and I don't actually necessarily think you have to find a sacred space based on a Theophoric place name, because more importantly, it's the uh, sacred pagan burial sites. So I've made several videos about sacred spaces. I did the lecture on on sacred spaces in England, uh, and I've done uh, a video documentary called um, I think it's called sacred spaces, places, Viking places in Sweden. But basically, burial grounds were always sacred spaces to them. They used Bronze Age burial mounds for rituals in the Viking Age. And they even made their barrows close to older barrows. And the barrows weren't just, a barrow is a burial mound, but it doesn't just serve the function of a, a funeral because afterwards they go back there for rituals. Sometimes they deposit other dead people nearby to that barrow. Sometimes they have non-religious rites there, too, because, I mean, for a start, they also they worship the elves at Barrow's by making sacrifices of oxen at Barrow's. So they placate the elves at the Barrow's of the dead. They also placate the dead and worship the dead at Barrow's and certain gods. Ingvi is the god of Barrow's and he was associated with Barrow's, too. And the thing The thing, which means an assembly, but in modern Iceland and Faroe Islands, it means parliament. Basically, their parliament buildings are called the things. Um, The thing is traditionally held either on a a barrow. And some barrows in Sweden are specifically made for a thing. And they don't even have anyone necessarily buried inside. Or sometimes they do have someone buried inside. But these ones have a flat top. And that's for everyone to stand on top. Whereas other times they don't have that, but they gather at the foot of the barrow, and then they might have something like a stone circle or or a stone ship. The stone's made in the shape of a ship, and then would gather inside that stone ship for their thing. But that stone ship can also serve as a burial thing because these stone ships often have cremated remains inside them. So the the secular, as we would conceive, you know, they didn't have this distinction between the secular and the religious, but the like you know, practical, secular gatherings, assemblies, for political purposes, were almost indistinguishable from rights in some respects. And they took place at the same places. And these places often have to be connected to the dead. And the boat, in my view, I'm making a video on this now, is like some way for the dead to be present at these meetings, because they don't just want all the living to be present at a parliament. They want the dead to be there too, because they have a say in everything. Uh, which is, you know, I I can't remember who said that quote. C.S. Lewis or someone talked about the democracy. Tradition is the democracy of the dead. Yes. Uh, Well, that's when you said that. I
1: immediately went, well, that is the spirit of the ancestors are here. Just because you can't see them and they should be represented, they are Hmm. part of the constituent geist of the spirit of it. So it strikes me as very interesting. The moment you said that, I thought, ah, yes, fellowship ships, fellows on a ship ship you know fellowship that's where that comes from right the idea of a ship being there and the spirits being there too that's where naturally i could see that being it's interesting
0: so so, so these are the sacred places that most concern me like when i want to go and to a sacred place i can go to a, a, an ancient burial ground or, or or somewhere i know was used for ancient pagan rituals these stone circles stone ships stone rectangles um are demarcated sacred areas for these purposes and um they were used as temples but there is also an actual temple in england in newark it's an old tudor church it's been converted to a temple for odin by the odinist fellowship charity all right um so yes we we do have temples in that sense
1: too so with with for you personally uh did you see what was your first experience of finding one of these regions and perhaps you can describe the landscape and how it looked and i mean in terms of of like you mentioned with the sense of the numinous with the delphic statue perhaps you could mention one of these really significant ones for germanic and the presenting of 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 the god. When was your first experience in one of these places? I
0: uh, we whenever we have rites, we always feel the presence of the divine. Uh, we have we bring with us idols, and we and we place the idols in the sacred space, and we um, define the sacred space at the beginning of the ritual in a ritual fashion. That's part of the ritual, and the same in the Rig Veda, There was you know the ru- Part of the rite is to demarcate the sacred space even some temples the, the temple of Agni where they there's an Agni Hotra sacrifice I think it's called where they the first part well the the the, the 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 rite itself is building the temple and then you finish by burning the temple down again so like it's not like um the actual establishment of the sacred space is the ritual um rather than just a, pre- a preamble to the ritual but yeah uh I I always feel it to be present sometimes we use um uh a tree can be a sim- a, a, a serve as an idol. The oak tree is a symbol of Thor, for example. So he is always associated with the thunder god in Indo-European countries. The oak is anciently as, uh, associated with the thunder god since uh, probably for 6,000 years. And uh, that continued in, in the um, Germanic religion with Thunor or Thor being explicitly tied to oak trees. Uh, Donner's Oak in Germany, for example, uh, was a sacred site that the Christians attacked. Um, you, 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 in that sense, the the oak becomes a living embodiment of the god um, because it, it its uh, association with strength, power, and its propensity to be a conductor of lightning.
1: Do you have a particular verses that are, and could you perhaps describe why the particular prayers? Uh, work for that uh, presencing, let's say. Because yeah. I know that the thing about uh, Homer, for instance, is that that poetry was particularly that, let's call it a, it's not a, you wouldn't call it a, you could call it a, de- a demigod in the way, because it's an overhuman and under man in the sense that. It is his his seeing of the primordial logos. That's over man. It's under God. It's a mediating thing to be able to do that. Whereas some a lot of this stuff was translated or was brought to us the Germanic stuff by Christians, right? So perhaps mm-hmm. there have been other people who have been poets who. This was what I was going to ask you. Have the has there been more revelation? Has peop have people rewritten things who have had revelation to better formulate them to actually have this relationship with the gods and presents them in prayers or are they using texts that are christian that have been recorded by christians like snorri's and um, whatever it's not
0: name? yeah well in the written sources there is only one germanic prayer um and that's generally used by all germanic pagans and it's it's not it, it, it's not snorri's prose is agreed to be Snorri's invention, but the the the, the poetry the, the poetry of the Elder Edda is uh, widely understood to be of genuine pagan origin because it's poet is in the poetic form. There's not easy to alter it, and the the fact there's only one prayer is not a mistake because Snorri would have excluded the prayers because he didn't like them because he was a Christian. But one of them passed down to us. But generally, um, personal gnosis is not a good uh, going to be the basis of other pagans how they structure their prayers. Um, if someone says, oh, I had a vision and the gods told me this is how we're supposed to pray, I don't think anyone would listen to them. But the I made a video instructing people on how I think they should structure their prayers called how to pray like a pagan. And I used the, the general structure of Indo-European prayer is evident in the Rig Veda and in Homer's writing and in other sources. So it begins with uh, an evocation, which means you use the epithets of that god, which are relevant to what you're going to ask them of them. So by using the praise epithets, you typify what is, uh, what aspects of that deity make them a good deity to invoke for, um, for, in that invocation, for the thing you're going to ask of them. Fortunately, we have lots of epithets for the gods that were from Germanic uh, religion, because The whole reason Snorri wrote any of this down is because he wanted to preserve the poetic tradition in Iceland. And the poetic tradition in Iceland depends on uh, the use of the kennings, which were essentially these kinds of epithets, a lot of them of the gods, and also references, mythological references that you use to compare to other things. So even though he didn't want people to be pagan or to remember paganism, especially, he, in order to preserve the poetic tradition, he, there needed to be a basic understanding of the pagan myths and of the appropriate uh, kennings. So um, that means that we we got all we got all the epithets, we got loads of them, and um, the option to build our own prayers in an the Germanic prayers in an authentic Indo-European context is actually very open to us. And um, so that's why I made that video. And uh, people generally like it and find it useful.
1: I don't want to ask you too many personal questions, but I'm interested in your journey with it personally. Do you have what what are your daily weekly practices with this engaging with this religion? Do you have any external aids you use with your prayers like prayer beads that Christians might use? Do do you involve your family if you're comfortable talking about it with with this religion? How do you have a, a yearly or or seasonal where, which you participate with the community and with your do, does your family come along and how do they feel about how, how's their engagement with the religion? I'm just trying to get an idea of what it feels like sure. from the inside, you know.
0: So there are massive annual festivals, um, important annual festivals, which uh, I was, I work celebrate communally with a group, which we call a half. And my half is mostly here in Devon, but some people travel from outside to join in for those rituals. Uh, On a a more day-to-day basis, we have household shrines. So all pagans, heathens, or whatever they call themselves. Uh, We keep the small idols in the home and a small shrine. Uh, for for daily or regular worship. Um, whereas you might use a larger idol at a, at a festival, at one of the high festivals. The, um, the uh, sacred space of at a festival has to be demarcated usually, you know, as part of the ritual uh, with, with these large gatherings. But if you have a permanent shrine in your home, it's not necessary to demarcate that space, but I demarcate sacred time. Uh, I personally use a bell um, that is attested as, as something that was used by the devotees of uh, Ingwifre at Uppsala. They used bells, uh, and um, in the film Northman, uh, recently they decided to incorporate that with the use of the, the bells in a, in a ritual to Ing. So uh, even though I have an idol, three idols in my home, in my personal shrine, which corresponds to the, uh, the Uppsala Trimurti, I call it, because uh, Adam of Bremen, a monk uh, describing the, the, the bishops of Hamburg in his book, he, he also describes uh, from a friend's account of the pagan rituals at Uppsala in Sweden, where I used to live. And there he says there were three idols and those three idols are um, identified as being Thor, Frey and Odin. And those three are, it does seem those three were together often uh, and there's depictions, there's a depiction on a Gotland picture stone that seems to show those three gods together. And Trimurti is an Indian term for when there's three gods that are often worshiped together. So for me, that the upside of Trimurti are the only idols in my home. Oh, so I do have another idol too, and a goddess downstairs as well, which I also sometimes um, placate. In a larger offering, you would make you know, traditionally animal sacrifices, but nowadays people often to plant that with uh, just libations of milk and mead and other alcoholic beverages uh or sometimes food offerings but on a daily basis or smaller prayers you might just light a candle um that's what i generally do light a small candle as an offering or light an oil lamp burning of incense that actually was added to judaism the incorporation of incense to judaism and christianity came from uh, latin uh roman paganism mm. and uh, indo-european pagans in greece rome and india used incense we don't know if the germanics used incense as offerings but since so many other indo-european pagans did i consider it a perfectly reasonable offering sure. to, to give the, to the gods so i burn incense for them as well
1: so symbolically purification that uh, is perfect for it really well yeah it's
0: like the the mm. in generally the i mean even the old testament it talks about how the the smell of burning meat is pleasing to to that god. Mm. The Greeks had that idea that burning meat for the gods was pleasing because they liked the smell of it. Mm. So we know that the Germanics offered burned animals and other kinds of meat and food, including stews as offerings to the gods. Mm. So the smell, the sensory experience of smell is just as important as sight and sounds. So use of bells, incense and stuff. The, it's not so much that I see the incense as purifying. It's more that this sweet smelling, nice substance is pleasing to the gods and I'm giving okay. it to them as something to please them.
1: So that's the function of all of it, the bell too, because I was going to ask that next. What is the function of those different?
0: Well, because we, only, we don't know in the Germanic context why the bell was used, um, but the I use it personally uh, in a similar context I've seen in India, in Buddhist and Hindu rituals, to symbolize the beginning and end of the sacred time right. that which within, within within which the ritual takes place mm. so you know in in um it's also said that the bells can sort of banish evil uh, mm. the bell is, a, 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 is a, a is a sound that casts evil away and that's mm. also in christianity like the church bells they believe that that you know satan doesn't like the sound of bells or something so, that so makes uh, sense. The Ontologically,
1: bell, really does because the whole reason why sacred closed offness works ontologically is that you have to close close it off from being because if the if because the logos and being is, is the known if everything is known that it's mapped the explan, explanada cover everything so it can't disclose anything it can't disclose being it can't disclose the god so it makes so much sense and if you had the bell there it's the same thing it's it's cover it it stops it from being covered by explanation and and logos the spoken mm-hmm. logos right because that thing is be, is if the captured logos which is in essentially being that's only one aspect of the thing that you describe or when you have okay we make a category this is a can if yet the can is always moving away from you you only get to capture an aspect of it with a description. So I'm just saying it makes sense, ontologically speaking, because you have to, if it's not separated, same as you mentioned with the sacred space, of course, the temple's always closed. You have to purify first, then open it. It seems as if, or it seems to me as if, at least in a Christian orthodox uh, 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 church, it reflects the human ontology it reflects it in the sense that it's actually necessary for it. So that makes sense that you use that even though there wasn't a description for that being the thing, uh, the function, you don't might might not know the function. There's a reason why it was there. And it seems to me Mm. that it matches that. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah,
0: we're very influenced by I'm very influenced and others in my heart, very influenced by Mircea Iliada and his ideas of sacred time and space. And we in we they they are very influential on the way that we establish space, sacred space and time, uh, and and I don't think they're in any way um, incongruous anachronisms, because what everything we know about the Germanic religion was that it it was really important to demarcate sacred space. We can see that in the archaeology. We can see that in the very linguistics of the you know the the, the language they use to describe the divine. The word Garf, uh, Asgard as God is like Osgard. Sorry, is the um, enclosure of the gods. God, this world is called in English Midanjarð or in Old Norse Midgard. It's uh, the middle enclosure, and everything's talked about it in terms of enclosures. Every temple mm. site that we find archaeologically has a fence around it. Uh, sometimes enormous, like the, the the Yelling Stone Ship uh talking about the stone ships again, the yet the largest of them in Denmark has a huge oak palisade around it which stood as high as three men um so the the, these boundaries were extremely important it's said of in the Adam of Brennan's account of the Uppsala temple that it was surrounded by a golden chain so they use a a chain of solid gold to demarcate the space so in every case we see that this this boundaries of space is very important. And that's what Eliada writes about in the sacred man, the, the man who lives in the sacred world, demarcates sacred, the sacred from the profane mm. and uh, in, in a ritual context. And the same has to happen with time. And we don't have any recorded instances of how they did that, but we know that they surely did it because a ritual has to begin and it has to end and there has to be some symbol of that. And I, for me personally, the bell is the way that I do that on on a day-to-day basis.
1: What would you say is the the most for you, the most moving verse, story, or prayer or whatnot from this canon that would would people, not, not as an introduction, that people would be, well, maybe just personally for you, that's fine it doesn't necessarily have to be a good introduction for people, but what is the thing that, that, uh, in spirit, in spirits, most the energy of this, or the gods, or the, the, of, of the numinous, let's say the.
0: The Verlisport to me is very important. That's when, um, that's, these are the poetic verses where Odin, um, speaks to, uh, he ri- rises, uh, it's one of the several times that he does this he raises a witch from hell and um just to to to, do, to obtain an arcane knowledge from her and verse four is the best because he's using it's basically a shared knowledge uh it's knowledge sharing experience where Odin's demonstrating a path to knowledge and uh the he asks these questions so that we can hear the answers if you in this poetic form about how things about everything, about the, the, the way of the work
1: mm.
0: and um, how things began and how they'll end and everything. So it's like a, an extremely interesting format because it shows as well, like um, the way that hell is perceived. Uh, the, the word hell in English came to be applied to the uh, Christian un- uh, conception of the underworld, but um, hell is the Germanic name for the afterlife. It's a cold place, and um, it's uh, a place with many places within it, where different types of people go to different places in the afterlife. Um, some of them are nice and some of them are not nice, but the um, it's a place where the dead dwell and they... C- the mortal dead somehow obtain knowledge that neither the living nor the immortals have access to. And this is something that the immortals, the gods are very interested in and use magic to obtain. And it seems also to have been reflected in the living as well that the the mortal uh, humans try to, engage with the dead in necromantic rituals to obtain this kind of sacred knowledge mm. um, and that's what i covered in my recent documentary on um, uh, the indo-european world tree and hell it's called and it shows how this tradition is so ancient not maybe not just six thousand years old back to the proto-indo-europeans but because we see similar examples in native american religion mm. and they have a common ancestor with the Indo-Europeans 20,000 years ago in Ice Age Siberia. So it may date back to Ice Age Siberia. Mm. Um, and I, I find it fascinating. And th- yeah, Verlispoor, uh if you want to get an example of this, of this kind of uh, wonderfully uh, evocative and um, uh, mystical
1: uh, poetry, mm. uh, I recommend reading it. It strikes me that idea that you mentioned, though, of the mortals having this uh, knowledge that the, that the gods seek out. It's that's, that strikes me as interesting. Is that only one that only after they die, only after they die, but even so, it's 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 an interesting idea in the sense that, well, if you think about the universe as a whole is that only something that has the limitations can, uh, you need that for things to be meaningful. Because the God the God is beyond that. It's mm. it's open. It, it's they're, inf- they're infinite, so mm-hmm. to actually have something particular that is connected to the uh, the teleology of the thing for a wall that you're all involved in, I don't know. It's it, it just well, it, stri- it, it, I, why I, it, do you it think that is? In,
0: I think my own personal interpretation, using Platonic analogies, is that um, the immortal so- the immortal soul of man is is inferior to the gods, but it's higher than all the other beings. It's the second highest being on the, on the, on the, you know, the divine hierarchy is, is our soul. Um, the, the, it's through in the Ambrokean theology, like it's through our, uh, embodied being that we, uh, the divine part of us experiences the divine, the divine experiences the divine through our embodied being. And this process is the function of being in fact, it's the meaning of being. Uh, and in that sense, we can see that this um, pursuit of wisdom by Woden, I always see him as being like a divine priest like Braspati in the, in, the, in the Indian tradition, showing us by example on myth, because the myths aren't um, the myths are true in this, uh, uh, they, they depict truth, but they're not meant to be actual seen as events that occurred. Uh, you know, in, in, in a literal sense. So Odin's pursuit of wisdom is, is a demonstration to us, a lesson on how we should pursue it. And uh, and that's how I think we can see a lot of evidence that some kind of necromantic rituals were um, performed in similar ways in the Odinic cult. But we, are, we, I mean, even in the Greek things, like the mortals, The the immortals envy the mortals to some extent because mortality gives an opportunity for heroism and it gives an opportunity for experiencing the divine in a way that the divine doesn't experience it. So it's kind of like, to me, it's hard to explain exactly because it's part of the the grand mystery of existence, but all these things, the Germanic, the Greek and the Yamblachian theology point to this idea of human, the human, embodied life as a way for the divine to return to itself. And uh, in in my view, this Odin's pursuit of wisdom from a witch who is like a learned woman in life who has gone to hell and then obtained arcane knowledge is like a returning of the cycle of knowledge. And that cycle of knowledge uh, or of experience is reflected in in the European myth, in the waters of memory uh, which flow in hell and it's that water that Odin also had to drink. sacrifice his eye in order to drink. Uh, in another, in another story, that's a, a separate story from Norseball. But it's this. It's this. Hell is the uh, is a place where the accumulative knowledge of mortal embodied uh, being uh, exists, uh, and that that is something that the divine seeks.
1: Uh, at, at, and that we should seek also. For you, what has it given you? Not that it's utilitarian, but what, ha- what has it done for you for your life? What has it, uh, vir- virtue-wise, what has it in habituation done to you as a man?
0: Everything, every experience is more significant and important. Every dawn, every wave on the sea, every um, blossom and uh, bud, everything is experienced as, uh, you know, as the numerous presence in the world. This is, uh, to me, there is no distinction between the divine and the world anymore because the divine is, the world is divine because the world exists within the divine. It is inferior to the divine only in the sense that it exists within the divine and the divine is greater than the world, but it is no way separate from the divine. Uh, it is no, it is no way an other to the divine. Uh, so the world is, of nature is entirely divine. That's why I reject Gnostic,
1: the Gnostic, yeah, uh, the Amplicus you're, you're talking about there, which it's divine all the way down from the top to the bottom. Yeah. exactly. Um, and I suppose the last question I'll ask is, is what, what was the crucial thing for you for walking out of a materialist ontology? What was the thing that helped bring you out of that nihilistic, materialistic, utilitarianism?
0: I can't really talk about that in too great detail. because it's rather a private matter. But I mean, I can't, as I said, it was very, very hard for me to be materialist. And it was a huge and an, an gargantuan effort to reject Christianity and become an atheist because I didn't really believe in atheism. Mm. I don't really believe that the the, that these, you know, divine forces were absent in the world. So it was only kind of playing pretend to be an atheist when I Mm. was. Uh, And basically I kept on having experiences that Mm. I won't talk about here that just can't be. uh, I couldn't fit them into this Mm. materialist worldview. And it was absurd for me to continue with this charade of pretending mm. that the matter is the only thing matter exists in and of itself and is the only thing that exists that just absurd mm. to me
1: let me put the question in other ways what do you feel would help perhaps walk people out of that that they might be able to at least look at something hmm well it's a good question and i know it's a it's a very big problem for anyone
0: not just people becoming pagan but for just from materialist people becoming religious I think the first and most important thing is that you practice rites and you keep doing them, prayers, offerings, whatever your religion happens to be practice them over and over and over and over. And the more you do them, the more, and the talks about this in theory, the more you perform them, the more your mind transforms to be a receptacle for perceiving the divine. Mm. You, you, you transform. You are what you constantly do, right? It's like, if you if you never run before your first run is going to be awful and then you keep doing it your body adapts to be good at it and eventually it becomes natural and then you need to run your body tells you it wants you to go and run so it's the same thing with um perceiving the divine you haven't done it your 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 faculties of perception of atrophy and you need to just practice and the more you practice the better you get at it um there's also a really good book for pagans specifically on this called summoning the gods by Colin Cleary. Mm. And in that he talks about the problem of making the God's presence felt in the world mm. when we are immersed in materialism. Uh, and it, it, and he just discusses that quite in a very interesting way, I think.
1: Well, thanks for that, Tom. I think people will get a lot out of it. I think it's a, it was really interesting to talk with you. And uh, no, thanks for having me, yeah. Scott. No, 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 you're welcome.